Court manners, sneered Nickabrick. But in this hole, we may talk plainly. You know, and he knows, that this Telmarine boy will be king of nowhere and nobody in a week unless we can help him out of this trap in which he sits. Perhaps, said Cornelius, your new friends would like to speak for themselves? You there, who and what are you? Worshipful Master Doctor, came a thin whining voice. So please you, I'm only a poor old woman I am. Very obliged to his worshipful dwarfship for his friendship, I'm sure. His Majesty, bless his handsome face, has no need to be afraid of an old woman that's nearly doubled up with her rheumatics and hasn't two sticks to put under a kettle. I have some poor little skill, not like yours, Master Doctor, of course, in small spells and cantrips that I'd be glad to use against our enemies, if it was agreeable to all concerned. No one hates better than me. That is all uh, most interesting and uh, satisfactory, said Dr. Cornelius. Now I know what you are, madam. Perhaps your other friend, Nickabrick, would like to give us some account of himself. A dull, gray voice, at which Peter's flesh crept, replied, I'm hunger, I'm thirst. Where I bite, I hold till I die. And even after death, they must cut out my mouthful from my enemy's body and bury it with me. I can fast a hundred years and not die. I can lie a hundred nights on the ice and not freeze. I can drink a river of blood and not burst. Show me your enemies. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. Welcome to the Inklings Variety Hour, where a handful of Inklings enthusiasts read and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, and others. I have three friends with me that I'd like to introduce to you, listeners. So we have our, our producer, Logan Huggins, back with us again to discuss Prince Caspian. Um, how are you doing, Logan? I'm doing well. I'm happy to meet you in this underground cave with a giant stone table in the corner. I'm very excited about planning our council of war and uh, discussing all things Prince Caspian. It's great. It's very homey. Super homey. Yeah, I love it. A lot of good acoustical sounds in here. If, if anyone's complaining about sound quality for this podcast, just know it's how we recorded it in this dank, dark cave. It has nothing to do with the editing process. That's right. That's right. We've got author of the Katie Watson Mysteries and Time series, as well as Churchill's Socks, of which we are proud owners and which are quite good, and you should all go and buy them. How are you doing, Mez? I am brilliant, and we have brought the tea and custard creams to the dark underground cave meeting. Good, good. We'll we'll need it in the in the days ahead. Sophie Burkhart, who is also a podcaster, who who does a podcast called Beneath the Willow Tree, which we will link to, uh, where she muses on philosophy, theology, and literature. Um, how are you doing, Sophie? I'm, I'm quite well. I have nothing to add to set the scene. I've just been enjoying everybody else. Well, wonderful, wonderful.
Prince Caspian was C.S. Lewis's second book in his Chronicles of Narnia series. He published it in 1951. It was finished before The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was published. It is, to my mind, both the most awkward Narnia book and also, increasingly, quite a good one. It's got moments of brilliant beauty and insight, perhaps in my mind, even more so than The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Let's go ahead and talk about our reading that we had at the top. Edmund and Peter, former high kings of Narnia, um, have followed Trumpkin down into Aslan's Howl, which is now uh, Barrow. They're listening at the door as Nickabrick, who's the not very nice dwarf, has brought two of his friends to help in Caspian's Rebellion. Those friends have just introduced themselves, and we're not told yet that they're a hag and a werewolf, but we get some pretty good clues. The girls, Susan and Lucy, are off on a romp with Aslan. Um, once again, much like in The Lion, Lich, and the Wardrobe, but this time they're joined by Maenads and Bacante, Bacantes, Bac the Bacai, and, and, and a lot of trees. Nickabrick, uh, as I said, has brought a couple of friends who seem pretty intent on freaking everyone out by saying very awkward things like, I'm hunger and no one hates better than me, and who indeed turn out to be a hag and a werewolf. Uh, what are your thoughts on this first part of chapter 12. Why does Lewis introduce these two characters here? I think it's so fascinating. And we spent a lot of time talking about this on our first episode on Prince Caspian of just the structure of the story and why C.S. Lewis painted the story and structured it out the way he did. We're in chapter 12 of a 15 chapter book. And we haven't even had a fight scene yet. We've waited so long for this whole story to get going, so to speak. We've had to wander in the wilderness. The kids were stuck on an island. We've had to sit down and listen to someone telling a story. We've had to sit down and listen to Trumpkin telling their story and then Trumpkin telling the Prince Caspian story. It's been this very intentional slow burn. We've seen the children grumbling and complaining, but still working with each other. And last chapter, Aslan's in the picture. Everything's picking up. The party's starting. The boys run off with Trumpkin to Aslan's how and you're like great let's get it going and then of course they stop at the door and we have to have this long protracted listening session of their overhearing this conversation in the room and if i read this as a young boy i would have been so impatient i was like why would not you stop at the door just kick the door down come on get the saving prince caspian but obviously, C.S. Lewis was much wiser than I am. And I think this is a very interesting window into Nickabrick and window into the possibilities that Prince Caspian had to turn to un-Aslan creatures, the dark magic. It's so vital to the story and so vital to the mission of what Prince Caspian is trying to do as sort of reviving this old Narnia. But structurally, just an interesting choice, but obviously a very intentional one by Lewis. Yeah, it's funny, both in terms of the structure of the book, which I, I kind of get why Lewis is doing this, right? Because he's making a point that the it doesn't so much have to do with structure uh, as, as it does like kind of... A apologetics and obviously the boys aren't the main hero of any narnia book like the the children it's always aslan who saves it it's always that and it's always in aslan's timing and in aslan's way obviously you're, you're totally right it's just a funny note of that this scene that how crucial it is and how sort of a climactic moment this is it's still a sense of waiting anticipation because they're literally sitting at the doorstep on their tiptoes anxiously waiting to see what happens next and as the audience i feel like well we are too we're like yeah, we're cl so close to something happening <laughs> yeah also kind of like you know any time now <laughs> edmund and and peter uh, they're they're about to kill caspian because you've been 
too slow in getting here. So maybe you could sort of open the door and say, hey guys, I'm here. Give Nick a brick, maybe a chance to take a sober look at his own uh, ideas about 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 things. Um, maybe take a sober look at like, do I actually need to employ a hag and a werewolf to win this war? But they stay behind the door and keep listening until it's kind of too late and, and Nick a brick dies, which is too bad for Nick a brick. He probably wouldn't have repented, but... It seems to me like the point that Lewis is making is sort of, you know, because they're, they're talking about, well, why hasn't help showed up yet? I thought, you know, and, and help is like literally at the door. You know, it's a very like second coming kind of point, right? Oh, he's never going to come when he could be on his way right now, right? Other readings of that and why they're waiting and what the hag and the werewolf even are? Yeah, I had a couple of thoughts when Logan was talking, just sort of comparing Caspian's advisors with Miraz's advisors later on. And the fact that Caspian goes and he follows the correct advisors instead of giving in to treacherous ones like Nickabrick with this hag and this werewolf. And then I was also thinking, so we mentioned in the past about how, according to Michael Ward, every Narnia book encapsulates a specific planet. And Prince Caspian, he argues, is Mars. So it has to do with knighthood and chivalry and honor. And I think honor is such a big thing throughout this whole book. And it really comes up at the end. I was reading the last maybe two chapters and like honor is almost every other paragraph that word is, is popping up. And so I think this is sort of showing Caspian's commitment to doing something the honorable way, which you kind of already mentioned, but just to pull out that notion of this being a, a Marsian book. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Caspian surrounds himself with people who don't just pay lip service to whatever Caspian wants to do, which is which is different from Miraz. And Miraz surrounds himself with people who need to be sycophants, and they end up, as we will see, stabbing him in the back. Caspian at least gets stabbed in the front. You know, they try to stab him in the front, and then they, and they get a bite in. There's a healthiness to this kind of counsel. I think you're totally right on, and I think it ties into that theme we spoke about on the first episode of Prince Caspian, this theme of community throughout the whole book here. So many examples of good community, and we see it with the children as they're trying to figure out what to do on the island and how they're trying to figure out how to follow Aslan. There, there's so much counsel and so much going back and forth and giving advice and taking advice and making their own decision, but I'm sorry, let's try it again this way. There's so much of that, and we see that also with Caspian and Truffle Hunter. And even though Nickerbrick is sort of a, a bad apple in that group, they're still counseling. They, they're still listening to one another. And I think you're totally right. I think it's interesting to take those examples of good community and compare them to Miraz later on with with these two lords and sort of seeing how manipulative and self-seeking and sort of self-devouring that type of community is. There is a treachery, but it's overcome by the community there. It's, it's, it's really cool. Nickerbrick keeps using talking plainly as an excuse to be really rude right which is interesting because like on the one hand like you want to have people who have different opinions from you that's how you win anything but Nickerbrick kind of to Mez and Sophie's point from from last episode about needing to have a view of the world that does not I don't know that's that's generous right and that's not stripped down to um, a sort of lack of belief that that ex that seems to extend to manners here as well, right? That Nickerbrick makes fun of the people who are saying you need to be a little more respectful to your king, man. And Nickerbrick says, "Court manners, court manners." Uh, but in this hole, we may talk plainly, right? Using this idea of like oh, you know, we're all in this hole together. We're all in this together. We can talk to each other as equals here as a way to kind of disenchant the 
the world in a way, right? Um, and and that's not to say he doesn't believe in magic. He clearly does, but he believes in ends justifies the means magic, right? In a bluntness, he kind of dresses the world in a sort of bluntness to make what he plans to do more palatable, right? At the end of the day, this is just about either our side wins or their side wins. I want our side to win. Therefore, let's call up the white witch, right? I'm sure Lewis saw it in his day happen where people, you know, they didn't want to stand on ceremony. They wanted to be frank with you. They wanted to, you know, talk to you in a sort of unadorned way, but smuggled in that was, was a particular view of the world that was, that was disenchanting. Uh, ends justifies means um, arguments to sort of seem more obviously the right thing to do. So they get in a big fight. The end, Caspian is hurt. The werewolf is killed while turning into a werewolf. The hag's head is lopped off. Nickerberg is stabbed. And Caspian has been hurt, which means he can't fight in any battles in upcoming chapters. Apparently the way that he got hurt was because he was bitten by a werewolf. So I want to know, like, why didn't Lewis pursue this further? There's just so much potential here for Caspian as a werewolf king. You know, Lewis just drops it. Even, like, all the stuff with the moon in the previous chapters i mean it's just laid out there for him he does not take the bait caspian does not end up being a werewolf king that we know of our first episode our very first episode of lion the witch in the wardrobe we noticed that there is apparently a talking kangaroo who is restored to life and we called for a fan fiction piece about the last talking kangaroo in narnia but i'd like to call for another fan fiction piece about caspian the werewolf king and if he could cross over with the talking kangaroo so much the better sophie's made a great point that in the filmic version of caspian the werewolf king robert patterson could probably step in pattinson (laughs) could step in and play that role i'm feeling a real sort of twilight vibe um which i'm sure lewis would totally approve of (laughs) not yeah lewis would have been just the biggest fan of twilight i think uh, <laughs> i think one possibility is maybe lewis knew what he was he wanted to do with caspian in the dawn treader so maybe the idea of having like a werewolf sea captain was just too much and he knew like the smell of wet dog on a ship somewhere would just be too much for all the characters so maybe he just was like oh, i'll just scrap this whole idea but there's wet mouse right i mean wet mouse probably smells as bad as wet dog right that's that's probably yeah. true i can't imagine reapy cheap allows himself to smell bad whatsoever but yeah. you may you may be yeah. right yeah so probably the greatest weakness of this book is uh you know not <laughs> not following that thread to give us caspian the werewolf king. Well, that's that's classic c.s lewis right yeah Freaking your imagination and letting it spin off into yeah. any world of ways. So, yeah. 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 In seriousness, the the thing where if you get bitten by a werewolf, you turn into a werewolf, I think is pretty late in werewolf lore. I think that I think we don't really get that until like the Victorians uh, and medieval werewolves just like somehow were werewolves. Often we're quite sympathetic, actually, which which would have been a great story if Caspian was one of them. But internet and listeners out there this is your call to action please submit your fan fiction the talking kangaroo and werewolf king caspian anything else we want to say about chapter 12 sorcery and sudden vengeance i feel like there's so much here well i don't know if this is anything novel to what has already been said but maybe just put a slightly different way i feel like um, you mentioned, you know, it's a shame for Nickabrick that he didn't sort of repent before it was too late. But I feel like he really does represent 
kind of going back to an Eden moment where he, like you said, he he's not ignorant of the magic. He knows good and well. Um, he knows his history, actually, of Narnia. But he's chosen to abandon Aslan because he believes Aslan is not good. That Aslan has abandoned him. And so he chooses to define good on his own terms, as you said, you know, to, to justify an end through those means. And so, yeah, I think he had to die <laughs> because um, it basically shows good is objectively defined here in the death of Nicobrick. Nicobrick seems to be kind of an ancestor of the whole dwarves for the dwarves thing that you, we get in the last battle later on. This this idea of like, we define good based on who's going to help our people out and kind of defining our people as the people that are like me in this particular way. If Aslan is good, he will prefer the dwarves like the white witch seemed to do. And if he doesn't prefer the dwarves, he probably is not good. Um, oh, one question I wanted to ask. Truffle Hunter keeps talking about how beasts are more patient than dwarves. Where's Lewis getting the idea? Like if you've ever like fixed food for a dog, you will know that beasts are not always particularly patient. And we keep hearing from Truffle Hunter, you know, beasts remember, right? Beasts know that things have never been right until a son of Adam or daughter of Eve has been on the throne. Beasts are patient. We wait. We wait for Aslan. You know, Truffle Hunter is like the true believer. I mean, it feels true. I don't know why it does. And, and I don't know why badgers in particular would be seen as being patient. So, yeah, I want to hear your, your thoughts on this question. Well, I have some thoughts because I'm a big fan of badgers. And actually, it's worth sharing a little anecdote that when uh, my husband Gordon and I and Sophie were in in the UK recently, we sat outside of a badger feeding area and waited a very long time for the English badgers to come along and, and munch the scraps that were left for them. So maybe there's something to the patience thing. We certainly learned patience waiting for them. But yeah, I don't see the American badger as a little feistier, but the British badger is kind of a lumbering wind in the willows kind of character. Constance from Redwall. In fact, maybe there's something to the hmm. fact that her name is Constance in Redwall. Yeah. Um, but we talked in the last episode about nature kind of holding on to the old stories and the truth, even when people have forgotten it. And I feel like to a lesser extent, although the beasts are mortal beings, that they sort of are rooted to that, that earth um, story, that truth that the men and, and the dwarves have forgotten, perhaps. When I was thinking too, in Harry Potter, Hufflepuff, the house of perseverance and determination is... Uh, badger. And so I think that at least for badgers, there's some kind of symbolism throughout history of badgers representing this patience and perseverance. I have no idea why it is yeah. that way. And I'm assuming Rowling had that from more than just Lewis. I doubt yeah. she was just pulling from him to have that imagery, but something yeah. to go and look up because badgers are, are well worth the research. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if badger from Wind in the Willows and Truffle Hunter are enough or if there is some, like you're saying, Sophie, just older lore about badgers being really patient. The interesting thing, though, is that, you know, unlike Nicobrick, Travel Hunter is not speciesist. Travel Hunter doesn't say, we badgers, you know, are patient. We badgers are, um, you know, we know that Aslan is real and we believe in him and things like that. Um, beasts in, in general. And there's something to, like, when you see animals suffer, there's a way in which their patience seems more beautiful even in some ways than human patients because they have no means of understanding their suffering. They're not necessarily able to look forward to a time when their suffering will get better, but they're patient in the moment, right, of 
of of suffering. You have Paul's whole, you know, creation groans as in the pains of childbirth, right, for, for the sons of God to be revealed. I wonder if that's not in there as well. Credit for long suffering that we that we tend to attribute to animals. But yeah, I mean it does seem specifically to be brought out in the case of the badger in in, in, in this book. So. Yeah, I think it I think it plays into that whole idea we were speaking about last time of how Lewis is uplifting this idea of nature. Not only are the trees in Narnia and the rocks and the the beauty of the land so heightened and Lewis is definitely like elevating that but he's even elevating the role of animals by giving them speech by giving them not just personality but oftentimes really noble personalities he gives Truffle Hunter this constant long-suffering I remember the old story he's, he's sort of perseverance and personified he gives Reapy Cheap this noble eloquent almost too eloquent knightly personality to me it plays into this whole idea of Lewis elevating nature and animals and part of that he not only oversaturates the trees and the spirits and the river gods, but he does the same thing with the animals that he brings into the stories. They're all serving their purpose. They're all fulfilling their purpose within nature in sort of exceedingly noble and relatable and personable ways, which I think is just sort of a classic Lewis. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 a great point, Logan. And that's absolutely Lewis in his idea of how the animal world can be redeemed, right? In the problem of pain, he's t- he talks about how animals seem to be become more themselves and also almost like acquire personalities right in the presence of humans who have a kind of identity conferring sub-creative role it's this odd like animal fable wind in the willows ish like kind of caricature meets like the redemption of creation in some ways in lewis's mind they seem to be uh, very similar if not the same phenomenon so it's super interesting Something that I think is super key to when Caspian and Peter and Edmund first meet that I think ties into a lot of the things we've already talked about is how, well, let's let's use the bad example of the movie. In the movie version, when Peter and Caspian meet, there's this classic Hollywood rivalry between Caspian and Peter. And they're like, oh, who's going to be the real hiking? And, and that's just not here at all. Because as we've mentioned before, this book is so much to do about honor and the knightly sort of way of being medieval knight. And I love when Peter meets Caspian and Caspian meets Peter, they come to each other and they say, oh, your your highness is welcome here. And Peter's like, no, your highness is welcome here. And it's a little on the nose, but I love it. He's like, I'm not here to be the king. I'm here to make sure you're the king. And it's such a great picture of that Christian idea of we're all kings and queens and we're all heirs to the throne, but we are serving one another and we're giving honor to one another, sort of lifting up one another, not trying to vie for who's in charge, who's the, who's the lead here and there. It's no, I'm here to serve you. Well, I'm here to serve you. And the way Lewis intentionally made that, the first lines they say to each other totally connects with the whole idea of knightly honor giving and honor receiving that we see throughout the book. Yeah, Hollywood has a really hard time refusing opportunities for conflict because they know that the audience yeah, is, is more likely to be interested if they see some kind of conflict. We finally have the two main characters, quote unquote, meet. Mm-hmm. And the first words out of their mouths are, well, I'm here to serve you. Well, I'm here to serve you. I'm here to put you on your rightful place. I just, I think that's so beautiful. Between two male characters, too, I think it's such a graceful picture, too, of, of brotherly honor. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. This is just kind of an extension of the graceful way that they've already been interacting, that Peter, of course, is the one to challenge Miraz and, and insists on doing it because Caspian is hurt. He dictates 
gets to Cornelius, he's like, I think I remember how to do this. Peter, by the gift of Aslan, by election, by prescription, and by conquest, high king over all kings in Narnia, emperor of the Lone Islands, and lord of Caer Paravel, knight of the most noble order of the lion, to Miraz, son of Caspian the Eighth, sometime lord protector of Narnia, and now styling himself king of Narnia, greeting. Have you got that? Narnia, comma, greeting, muttered the doctor. Yes, sire. Then begin a new paragraph, said Peter. For to prevent the effusion of blood, and for the avoiding of all other inconveniences likely to grow from the wars now levied in our realm of Narnia, it is our pleasure to adventure our royal person on behalf of our trusty and well-beloved Caspian in clean wager of battle, to prove upon your lordship's body that the said Caspian is lawful king under us in Narnia, both by our gift and by the laws of the Telmarines, and your lordship twice guilty of treachery, both in withholding the dominion of Narnia from the said Caspian, and in the most abominable, don't forget to spell it with an H, Doctor, bloody and unnatural murder of your kindly lord and brother, King Caspian, ninth of that name. Wherefore, we most heartily provoke, challenge, and defy your lordship to the said combat in Monomachy, and have sent these letters by the hand of our well-beloved and royal brother Edmund, sometime king under us in Narnia, Duke of Lantern Waste, and Count of the Western March, Knight of the Noble Order of the Table, to whom we have given full power of determining with your lordship all the conditions of said battle, given at our lodging in Aslan's Howe this twelfth day of the month Greenroof, in the first year of Caspian, tenth of Narnia. That ought to do, said Peter, drawing a deep breath. I, I think to me, the biggest part of this is just it's speaking to the overall Mars feel of the book and the chivalry and the honor. Like, even though it's something so small, it, it just shows again and again that Aslan's side is going to go about this the right way, where we see Miraz and his men consistently going about it the most wrong way possible. Yeah, and they, they really do. Uh, so you have these two advisors who I never remember until I read the book again. Glozel and Sopespian. You know, the Spien ending of a name seems to be a Telmarine thing, but uh, they are conspiring together and decide, well, you know, it would be great if the king, if we, if we didn't have to fight, and if the king, you know, took this kid on in single combat and if the king lost we could still take them on but if the king won then all the better we we wouldn't have to fight and it's time that the king gave us something for all our effort might as well talk him into something that could get him killed so they kind of use this uh, reverse psychology on miraz because miraz is in is in a situation where he's like well we're winning the war we don't i don't need to do single combat and they're like oh absolutely right absolutely right uh, you wouldn't want to hazard your royal person miraz is like well, what are you talking about I've go of course i'll win this guy's a kid yeah you shouldn't hazard it mm -hmm. as someone your age and he's like wait what what oh, all right fine i'll do it yeah so i'm to be a dotard as well as a dastard 
Houston. It's it's great. It's that classic Lewis, the antagonist, eating themselves. They are destroyed by themselves, even more so than Land the Witch and Wardrobe, where Aslan comes and essentially defeats the White Witch. Here, Peter has the fight, Miraz, but Miraz literally gets stabbed in the back by his own evil supporters, his own evil community behind him. And you see that again and again in so much of C.S. Lewis's work. All good people have to do is sort of stand up against evil, but evil itself will end up consuming itself because that's what it is. Yeah, it's 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 super fun to watch. I, I I can't imagine, you know, a real king being played quite this easily, but maybe some have been with very short reigns. I don't know. They're basically kind of like, oh, of course, you're you're not a coward. But I must plainly say that to meet that young man in battle is more than my heart would serve me for. In the end, of course, he says, ah, I'll tell you what it is, my lords, with your womanish counsels ever shying from the true point, which is one of policy, you have done the very opposite of your intent. I had meant to refuse it, but I'll accept it. Do you hear? Accept it? I'll not be shamed because some witchcraft or treason has frozen both your bloods. Then they pretend to like beg him, no, please don't you know, accept this duel. And then, then it's on. I can't help but remember an episode of Rest Development where Lucille Bluth doesn't want Buster to go to army and Buster comes home and, and she's, she's like, so you're back. Oh, I'm so glad. There's no shame in being a coward. It's just a great line. And Buster has all these stuffed animals and he's like, would a coward have these mother? So we've got, we've got this ending with Reepicheep where the different animals are sort of volunteering to be in the lists or be marshals and, and asserting kind of the, the bears are asserting their ancient right to be marshals in, in duels, which apparently I guess happened all the time. Like this is maybe how you settle things in ancient Narnia, just a duel and Aslan lets the person who's in the right win. Lots of honors being bestowed on different animals whether it's the bears and on condition they don't suck their paws or or, or even even after they suck their paws even despite the fact that they're still sucking their paws king peter's like well you're still gonna be my marshal i love that yeah yeah don't let him whispered trumpkin to peter he's a good creature but he'll shame us all he'll go to sleep and he will suck his paws in front of the enemy too so it's just a great, great comedic uh, moment, as is the thing with Reepicheep, where they're like, oh, I don't really want Reepicheep up there because he's really small. You know, Peter, he... Peter's quick on his feet and he, yeah. he gracefully turns Reepicheep down, but a very honorable turning down. He, he yeah, denies yeah. him the, the role, but it's because of my honor for the enemy, because some people are afraid of mice and that would be an unfair advantage, Reepicheep, and you're too valuable. So maybe not this time. And so Reepicheep just is like, you're the mirror of honor. Yes. Uh, it's such a wonderful picture too and a laughable one of the weak shaming the strong we're talking about bears and mice but of course remember that it's four children and it's a child who's taking on miraz in a duel so at every level it's the weak shaming the strong yeah i love the uh it is your right said peter and you shall be when he's talking to the bear and you shall be one of the marshals but you must remember not to suck your paws of course not said the bear in a very shocked voice what are you doing at this minute? bellowed Trumpkin. The bear whipped his paw out of his mouth and pretended he hadn't heard. But but yeah, absolutely. The sort of ragtag character of Caspian's army, that it's not only a boy leading an army, but it's a boy with strange people, right? That, that hadn't been really even allowed to exist up until... 
five minutes ago for for a very long time. I think you're totally right. I think that's such a great thing to remember about Caspian's army versus Miraz's army. And that idea of like having a diverse community versus a, a community of just, we assume just all grown up men of uh, Telmarine. And it goes back to that theory we were talked about a couple episodes ago about how this is such a neat picture. And if you take, if you stretch it in the right way, you can almost say this is like the book of Acts version of the Narnia story, where this is a story of a ragtag group of very desperate and different patchwork of people and communities all coming together. The only thing they have in common is Aslan. And the only thing they have in common that they're fighting for, putting their hopes in, is Aslan and their leader, Prince Caspian. He's they, they really have nothing else in common. And so I love that. That's such a clever and fun picture of the church and we see throughout the New Testament and still today. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, and, and it lines up with, you know, what Lewis kind of says about the ter- church in the screw tape letters. You know, you've got the grocer with a rather oily expression on his face and, uh, you know, someone whose shoes squeak and all of these other, you know, things. But in, you know, like... Like you were saying, the, the weakness is part of the point. We have that strength and weakness on display and in chapter 14, how all were very busy, um, where you have this sort of duel between Peter and Miraz. When you have duels in literature, so often they just blow up in everybody's face. And this seems to be, you know, not an exception to that. And you get this kind of like blow by blow account from the audience. You don't really get to be inside Peter's head as he's dueling Miraz. This is all sort of secondhand and Edmund and Trumpkin and and Caspian kind of all all talking to each other, um, describing what's going on. Just about the time Peter gets the best of Miraz. The Telmarines are surrounded by a tree army. And we see what's kind of been happening all day throughout the former Telmarine-occupied land of Narnia. But soon neither their cries, the cries of the Telmarines, nor the sound of weapons could be heard anymore, for both were drowned in the ocean-like roar of the awakened trees as they plunged through the ranks of Peter's army and then on in pursuit of the Telmarines. Have you ever stood at the edge of a great wood on a high ridge when a wild southwester broke over it in full fury on an autumn evening? Imagine that sound. And then imagine that the wood, instead of being fixed to one place, was rushing at you and was no longer trees but huge people, yet still like trees because their long arms waved like branches and their heads tossed and leaves fell round them in showers. It was like that for the Telmarines. It was a little alarming, even for the Narnians. So you have this odd culmination of all the wildness that we've seen so far, right? Um, and this, it's kind of like a battle, sort of, but it's more like a romp. And Aslan is going around with Bacchus and sort of setting the Telmarine country to rights. The Telmarines, the way the way it gets brought up is they try to cross the bridge into Baruna, but the bridge is gone. And why is the bridge gone? The bridge is gone because earlier that morning, the god of the river asked Aslan to loose my chains. Who on earth is that? whispered Susan. I think it's the river god, but hush, said Lucy. Bacchus, said Aslan, deliver him from his chains. Bacchus causes vines to go around the bridge and get rid of the bridge. What do y'all make of that? What's wrong with bridges? Why is Aslan interested in destroying a country's infrastructure, whether it be bridges or schools? <laughs> I think it just depends on the the infrastructure. In this case, 
the bridge was clearly posing a, a hindrance to the romp. <laughs> so yeah, and, and with the schools, you know, we talked about how schools in Lewis's day were often trying to disenchant uh, children and de-educate them, suck the wonder right out of them. So I think he's very selective about which infrastructure he's down on. Because of course, Aslan's the one who's set them out to sort of increase, multiply and and civilize the land as well. So there's a kind of good civility in that which is maybe just utilitarian. Why this bridge particularly, I don't know, but obviously it had to go. <laughs> Clearly. Clearly. Whenever I read this part of the book, I kept thinking like, what would hold back a river god? Like, I guess your first thought is, well, a dam would make the most sense, you know, like a dam stopping the river, you know, sort of. But then I kept thinking, well, that's straight out of the two towers. Like, that's literally Isengard, the Ents. That's how the Ents sort of save the day is that they, they release the river and saves the day at the end. So I thought, well, maybe despite all of Lewis sort of sticking his nose up at Tolkien throughout this book and sort of teasing him a lot about his mythology, maybe he just didn't want to go that far to actually steal a scene from the two towers. <laughs> it also does make me think of the flooding of the river Anduin in Fellowship when the Black Riders are are taken out by the horse-like waves of the river. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's 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 this odd dance that's in this book, right, between nature being subject to humans and and like in this chapter, that's sort of not quite happening in exactly the way we're 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 used to seeing in a lot of Narnia. As far as uh, river gods and bridges go, I can't help but think of Lewis's sort of frenemy, T.S. Eliot's uh, The Dry Salvages and the Four Quartets. I do not know much about gods, but I think that the river is a strong brown god, sullen, untamed, and intractable, patient to some degree, at first recognized as a frontier, useful, untrustworthy as a conveyor of commerce, then only a problem confronting the builder of bridges. The problem once solved, the brown god is almost forgotten by the dwellers in cities. Ever, however, implacable, keeping his seasons and rages, destroyer, reminder of what men choose to forget, unhonored, unpropitiated by worshippers of the machine, but waiting, watching and waiting. His rhythm was present in the nursery bedroom, in the rank alianthus of the April dooryard, in the smell of grapes, on the autumn table, and the evening circle in the winter gaslight. Yeah, this idea of, of finding a way to forget about nature, right? And finding a way to forget about the river and the inconvenience of nature being a, a, a reminder that the world is not simply centered around us. Have any of y'all ever heard of the LA River? I don't know if this is like historical fact, but this is the way it was told to me. If you're ever in Los Angeles in sort of the main through of LA, which as we all know, it doesn't rain much in LA, but apparently back in like the 20s and 30s, there was a river, like the Los Angeles River, very natural flowing through downtown LA area. And apparently one very particularly rainy season, it flooded. And so everyone's sort of like, oh my gosh, we can't have this ever happen again. And so what they did was they created what is now the LA River. It's this enormous concrete trench down the center of LA and it's all very man-made it's just got rain pipes coming here and there and but it's literally just a big giant pitiful 
trickle of water. It's such an embarrassment because they they overreacted that one time. And now for the last 70 years, they replaced this natural body of water throughout a city that really desperately needs water into this sort of man-made concrete rain wash. Uh, they try to like make it like a, a walking track or they try to put like, oh, it's a great place to ride your bicycle. It's like, it's a great place for homeless people to live now. <laughs> That's what that is. But anyway, that classic sort of man trying to put nature in its place where they're responding to it or overreacting to it and messing up nature by our own short-sighted ways. That's a brilliant example. Yeah. so sad. <laughs> what would Lewis say? <laughs> if Aslan came to LA and tried to reawaken the god of the LA River, there would be many bridges, many things to tear down. Let's just say that, yeah. There's a fan fiction for you. Or maybe Caspian the werewolf could <laughs> come to LA. <laughs> like a werewolf in London uh, is now werewolf in LA. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And oh man. He and the kangaroo can help <laughs> tear down the fake river. Yeah, this is really C.S. Lewis's most romantic and romantic in like the uppercase R sense of, of the word. Like he's a lot like a Wordsworth or Coleridge here he has even um, or, or perhaps especially schools being disrupted by aslan and the various weird scenes of schoolroom dysfunction right aslan makes right right by essentially destroying the educational project that that these uh these people were engaging in so we've got miss prizzle right which which is great kind of the anti Magic school bus, Miss Prizzle. But please, Miss Prizzle, began Gwendolyn. Did you hear what I said, Gwendolyn? Asked Miss Prizzle. But please, Miss Prizzle, said Gwendolyn. There's a lion. Take two order marks for talking nonsense, said Miss Prizzle. And now... A roar interrupted her. Ivy came curling in at the windows of the classroom. The walls became a mass of shimmering green and leafy branches arched overhead where the ceiling had been. Miss Prizzle found she was standing on grass in a forest glade. She clutched at her desk to steady herself and found that the desk was a rose bush. Wild people such as she had never imagined were crowding round her. Then she saw the lion screamed and fled, and with her fled her class, who were mostly dumpy, prim little girls with fat legs. Gwendolyn hesitated. You'll stay with us, sweetheart, said Aslan. Oh, may I? Oh, thank you, thank you, said Gwendolyn. Instantly, she joined hands with two of the maenads, who whirled her round in a merry dance and helped her take off some of the unnecessary and uncomfortable clothes she was wearing. So really weird. This is Lewis at his most romantic and also Lewis at his weirdest, I think. What do you all make of this as well as like the accompanying thing where it's a teacher being hassled by pig-like little boys who get turned into pigs? I was also just thinking of the trench ball. It's kind of rolled oh, up. Oh, yeah. Yes. I think C.S. Lewis is obviously writing this for children. And all children sort of universally have this great antagonist of school or teacher, you know, like sort of naturally we hate, we sort of revolt against teachers. And so, so I, I almost, what would kids enjoy in this book? Oh, how about a story about a schoolhouse that gets destroyed? Like, yeah, go, go students. But I think also what's interesting is there's two schools here. There's the first school where the antagonist is the teacher and Aslan liberates the student from classroom setting. I, the first thing I thought of was Pink Floyd, Brick in the Wall. We don't need no education you know, all this fun stuff. But then of course, C.S. Lewis is not trying to make that point. He's making the point of revival. And I love that he gives a second example of the teacher being liberated from bratty students. So it's not like your classic sort of kids literature. The teachers are mistrunchable. The teacher is the bad guy. Aslan's liberating everyone out of this terrible system, I guess, for lack of a better word. So I, I don't know. I love that he has two different examples. One's very Pink Floyd and one's very Miss Honey from Matilda. Matilda. 
Yeah, I can I can definitely see both of these scenarios in a rolled doll book, um, for for sure. Yeah, it's it's really uh, it's it's got that kind of um, fantastic sort of children's fantasy, you know? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Cruelty is probably the wrong word, but just edginess. It's that classic sort of medieval myths and legends, like, well, you get what you deserve, bratty children, and now you're a herd of pigs, and you know whatever. Mm -hmm. It's it's definitely Mm -hmm. that old school. Bad people get punished, and you know, bratty bratty kids get their comeuppance, and awful teachers, you know, run away screaming. So I I think it's very old school in that sense. Yeah, I wonder too. Once again, how much of this is is harkening back to Lewis's own childhood experience, because in his in his biography, he doesn't speak too fondly of his school day experiences. Definitely some teachers that he would probably have fantasized <laughs> this happening to. Yeah. And peers as well. So maybe this is his sort of writing out his childhood fantasies. Um, yeah, I could definitely I could definitely see that. And, and certainly like it's not unbiblical for little boys who are teasing a prophet for being bald to have <laughs> bears sicked on them. It's in there. One other thing I wanted to I wanted to bring up, everything's so modern. For a moment, it's as though we leave Narnia and we're in this sort of like rolled Dalian universe, right? Like it's it's What do you yeah, what do you mean by modern? Well, you've got school mistresses. Uh, they're having a history lesson, right? Uh, Narnian girls with their hair done very tight and ugly tight collars around their necks and thick tickly stockings on their legs. We're having a history lesson. The sort of history that was taught in Narnia under Miraz's rule was duller than the truest history you ever read and less mm. true than the most exciting adventure story. So it's just like this very modernist kind of aesthetic, very particular to 20th century England. It's so odd. It takes me. It takes me out of the of the novel itself. Like I, uh, the illusion kind of is broken by these sorts of little satirical moments, right? I wonder I don't know. if that's what he's aiming at. That you almost feel this yucky sort of. Oh, I'm in this horrible modern world that sounds just like my world. I want the bacchanalia. I want the. I want the gods. I want the the romp. And that's what Aslan is giving us. He's kind of washing the slate clean and bringing back all of these glorious things that to children are just so delicious and desirable. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's bringing joy back where everything's been sort of um, muted and and monochrome. So I almost feel like he did that very intentionally because he's sort of picturing a world that that he dreamed of, that he longs for, and then picturing this quote unquote real world. And he's bringing the the three-dimensional multicolor, technicolor world in full force. And so you really, you really feel that wave crashing in. It is of a piece of the other sort of tones that he experiments with at the beginning, where it, it feels like a modern adventure story at the beginning, when they're, where they're just not like on an island and they're just kind of wandering around and exploring and trying to figure out how to eat and stuff like that. Like it's, it's not it does not seem like the fantasy genre other than they got there somehow, right? One more note while we're talking about the education element of this. It just came to me of one of my favorite takeaways from Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe is what the professor says when at the, at the very end of the book and then before they get into Narnia uh, for real, they sort of come and ask them like, professor, is this possible? Like, is, is Lucy lying? And he sort of hits them with like, what are they teaching in these schools now? Like, don't they teach logic in these modern schools? And I love that because it's sort of that, that 
classic C.S. Lewis, if you're not studying the old stories, if you're not studying the mythology and the the everything sort of under the, the lens of Aslan and under the lens of Christ, see the same thing happen again in the space trilogy of like Weston at the end of Out of the Silent Planet. He's trying to be so sophisticated and he's going on and on about the progress of humanity does not stop for species. And, blah, blah, blah. and then Ransom has to turn around and try to explain it in like very concrete terms. And essentially he's just like, this guy's crazy. I don't know what he's going on about. Like, it's just, it, you see again and again, um, as mentioned earlier, the weak critiquing the, the strong and the weak overcoming the strong because the strong are so self-absorbed or so overly educated. And yeah, it's, it's great. Classic Lewis. Yeah, that's so good. And there's such an assumption, you know, still. And, and a lot of times like now it's just based on the fact that we have more efficient ways of like wasting our own time than, than people <laughs> than people used to but yeah this this assumption i encounter like in a lot of my students as well of just like oh well we've progressed more than than they have we're, we're a little bit better um than the people were back then uh, without without really like questioning it or thinking well why what makes us better what makes us more advanced like what are the things like, can you give me a philosophical argument that supports the thing that you're just kind of assuming is true and Lewis definitely supplies philosophical arguments on the other side. Uh, all right, chapter 15, last chapter. Aslan makes a door in the air, and I want to hear how many of you, while walking through the forest as a child, ever saw a door-like thing in the air and tried to go through it to get to another world? Yeah, it's a, yeah. That's a classic, classic uh, move. Here you have the door actually is a door out of this enchanted world, right? But again, just like in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, our world is fairy to Narnians. A little bit like the wardrobe. It's it's interesting the way that the way that this is done, right? Um, and, and and that the reason that the kids have to go back is because they're trying to prove to the Telmarines that this is not a trick. Because the Telmarines, as it turns out, came originally from Earth and settled in Telmar for a while, back in the days when there were more doors between Narnia and our world. If Narnia was created during Victorian times, how do we get, I'm assuming, 16th, 17th century pirates finding a door into Telmar, wherever that is? Anyone, anyone want to tackle that here at the end of the The only, only thing I can say is that the chronology doesn't match up. So maybe it wasn't Victorian times when Diggory was there. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Well, it? as we know, time works differently in Narnia yeah. as it does in our world. So maybe they stumbled into that cave and got time warped forward for them in a way that worked different than the children. Yeah, yeah I could buy that. I could buy that. Yeah, it's the magic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they settle in Telmar and that's where their name comes from, the Telmarines, but then there's a drought. So they have to go up to Narnia and conquer it. And none of them realize that they originally came from Earth. Aslan's like, all right, Telmarines, even though you've been here for generations upon generations, it's time for many of you to go back. This is this is another one of those decisions of Aslan's that I don't know that I would like totally get behind. We're going to reintroduce these people that have lived in Narnia for thousands of years, hundred hundreds of years anyway, right? And we're going to reintroduce them to some island in the middle of the Pacific. They apparently originally came from like hundreds of years ago, Earth time. Instead of just like sending them back to Telmar, like why why not send them back to Telmar? 
Aslan gives them a choice, right? He gives them a chance of like, well, you can stay, but if you stay, you have to honor King Caspian. It's the younger Telmarines. They're like, yeah, we could live in this world. Yeah, we can make this work. Talking animals and King Caspian. Yeah, we can make this work. And it's the older one. I think there's a little note in the book where it's like the older ones who had positions of power with King Miraz and were used to sort of getting their way. They were the ones that were resistant. They were the ones that were like, no, we'll, we can't, we can't live in this world of Narnia if there are such things as lions and talking bears and and, all this stuff. So it sort of makes it a choice on the part of the Telmarines by the end that those who are walking through the gate are essentially choosing to do so. I like that a lot, the older versus younger breakdown, right? Because that totally tracks with everything we've sort of been talking about with with this. And it also tracks with the fact that Peter and Susan have realized they're not going to be able to go back to Narnia, right? Aslan has told them that, and it's, it's the younger two that get to go back. So this sort of thorough endorsement of childlikeness, both in like kind of the metaphorical sense, as well as in like the literal sense when younger people just have an easier time being childlike as it turns out that works really well i still i still don't know why he wouldn't send the older ones back to telmar instead of back to earth but that's okay it's because the kids have to get back anyway to earth anything else from this final chapter that you all wanted to make sure to talk about or themes or, or anything like that one of the themes in prince caspian that i think are really interesting is this idea of if you want to believe something you have to sort of walk in obedience first lucy and the children sort of have to follow the path before they see aslan that classic christian idea of we're called to obedience and then it'll over time be revealed like sometimes the lord gives us the picture as we're following in obedience and i think it's funny he even gives the telmarines that opportunity here they don't want to walk through the door because they can't see it. And so Lewis has the children sort of walk through with them so that they, the Telmarines, believe that Aslan will send them back to the real world and not destroy them or kill them or whatever they're worried about. It's just, it's interesting. I don't know. It's something about that. You will see it as you do it. Like you'll see it as you follow Aslan, as you follow the path, following the path, even if you can't see where it's going. Kind of in relationship to that. And this is something we've touched on. Just the fact that Aslan works through surrogacy throughout the Chronicles, but specifically, I think it's really strong in Prince Caspian because, you know, everyone's claiming and complaining that he's not been on the scene. He's just disappeared for all of these years and he's been there and then he comes back and you're thinking well he he can just storm you know storm that cave do away with the enemies get rid of miraz with one chomp but he doesn't choose to do it that way he sort of stands in the background and allows these children these animals these these people to take those steps like you're talking about those those choices to trust and to obey and he uses them to then liberate narnia and of course then he does come in and he leads the romp but i just find it really striking that is the way Christ chooses to build his kingdom, as we've been saying all along through children, <laughs> through childlike faith, through the weak. Um, I just think this is a fantastic picture of that and an encouragement really to, to keep trusting and keep stepping forward and trust that that romp is going to come. Thank you all so much. Thank you, Logan. Thank you, Mez. Thank you, Sophie. This has been wonderful. You all are welcome back anytime you want. Once a king or queen in the Inklings Variety Hour, always a king or queen in the Inklings Variety Hour. So we'd love to have you back anytime. With that, uh, I say to you listeners, walk through that door. This has been the Inklings Variety Hour. See you later.
pleasant encounter full of joy and scheduled on the decent plan with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan. I also just want to say for those who have the illustrated versions of Prince Caspian, the illustration of the werewolf flying through the air at Caspian's head gave me nightmares as a child. I had a real thing about werewolves and I think it came down to this illustration. It is terrifying. Go look at it if you've got it at home. Is this the one? Is that the one? one? Look at him doing the splits. He's doing the splits. He's got like ballerina legs. Exactly. Isn't that that just perverse? That's terrible. And you see the hag over here on the floor. Yeah, I mean, I think the hag is scarier for my mind. Look at the hag's Uh, foot. What's going on? Oh my goodness. They all have like Grinch feet. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the hag and werewolf communities do not come off very well in this in this book 